All right. <clears throat> so uh, I have a I have a quick question for you this morning. What is your favorite kind of story? Uh, all of us, I think, tend toward uh, reading or watching different kinds of things to enjoying different kinds of narratives. So, so just think for a moment, what is the kind of story that when you sit down to read it, it captures your attention? Uh, maybe you're a sucker for like romance novels and stories, uh, perhaps history or historical fiction or uh, crime or any of those sorts of things. Uh, now, this particular genre I'm going to talk about here may not be your particular cup of tea, but in our society, uh, we are very much consumed with stories about the supernatural, uh, about vampires or witches or magic or spirits or ghosts and other such chestnuts that you will find in the fantasy area of the bookstore. So why is it that our culture is so drawn to these kinds of stories, stories about all of these things that are so, so fantastic and mystical? I think that there are several factors, but one of the primary draws of these kinds of books is that we are fascinated with things that go beyond life as we know it or experience it. I mean, let's just be truthful with one another. We don't always want to sit down and read a book that is basically about the life we live, right? Because we live that life. I don't need to read someone else's version of that. So we look for something to escape, and many of these stories push the boundaries of what we believe or know is possible, and that's part of what makes them so captivating. Now, the Bible, to be sure, is a book that does not tell a simple story about just life here on earth. It transcends what we see and experience, speaking about a God who not only created the world, but is in constant relationship with those that he loves in the world. And you see God show up in so many different ways in the Bible. He, he parts the sea. He sends fire from heaven. He makes food fall from the sky. He sends plagues of locusts and water turns to blood and there's a ton of frogs and all these other things. The earth shakes at his presence. The Bible is full of these supernatural and powerful demonstrations of who God is. Yet it becomes clear as you read the story of God and his people that the thread we see God weaving throughout is not simply a thread of great power and otherness. The thread is actually God's great love for those he created. And, and this thread of his love that goes through the tapestry that, that shows our story pulls it together where otherwise it might fall apart. And perhaps the thing that is so remarkable then about the story that we see being told in the Bible is that this God who is so powerful and over all things cares to know about us at all. Now, something else that's interesting is that this story that we have in Scripture, it could have ended in a lot of different ways. 
you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, it didn't have to end the way it, it did. In fact, there is an ending to this story of God and his people that makes a lot more sense than what we see written in the pages of Scripture. If the story starts with God creating the world, and then uh, follow, followed up by uh, creation's rejection of God, then the story should have moved in a different re- uh, direction than it actually does. Sure, God could try to keep the tapestry together, but ultimately, his thread would prove to be drawn too thin. It would snap, and God would let his people go. Do you understand that that's the most rational way the story could have gone? That this thread of love just gets stretched out so far that it snaps? And that God would let his people go And in a narrative sense, this would look like God washing his hands of his creation, walking away, leaving the world to do what it wants, destroying itself in the process. And honestly, that's the the ending that makes the most sense. It makes way more sense than the ending that we have. Because instead of allowing that to be, we are told that God did the most surprising, the most unexpected, the most unbelievable thing that any God in his position could do. He did not wash his hands of his rebellious creation. Instead, he dove in headfirst to correct the thing which had been the real problem the whole time. Yes, Humanity had rejected him. This rejection is manifest in sin. Humanity will not stop sinning. No matter how hard they try, we are still going to sin. But something must be done about this. Not by we who are incapable, but by a God who is more than capable. Shockingly, we're so dead to these kinds of things because we know the story so well. But shockingly, God sent his son to earth to live amongst his rebellious creation. The son of God left heaven to come down here and live with us. And while Jesus was here, he truly did remarkable things. He he healed the sick. He showed control over nature by calming the storm. He walked on water. He brought a dead guy back to life. The power of God was incarnate here on earth in the person of Jesus, and Jesus showed just how powerful God is. But, you know, signs, miracles, and wonders fill the pages of the gospel. But they were not really the point of Jesus being here. In other words, he didn't come to just show off and to let everyone see how awesome he is. Jesus was here to demonstrate through his actions, through his words, just how much God loves his people. Because here's the thing, they had no idea. They had no idea how much God loved them. How did he do this? Well, he, he walked with those who had been rejected from society and had no one to hang out with. He wrapped his arms around those who had been told they were no longer good enough for God for whatever reason they might have been given. He sat at the table of those who had been told that no one who cared about God would ever step foot in their home or be seen with them 
privately or publicly. He formed, this is remarkable, he formed a community with the hurting, the poor, the disenfranchised, the unimportant, the sick, and the dying. And he told them, through his words and his actions, that God's love is not reserved for the powerful or the perfect. That God's love is free to all and given to all. And church, that's a message our church and all churches everywhere need to spread more deliberately. That God's love is for all. That all who are thirsty can come and drink their fill at the deep well of God's love. We who have grown up in a time uh, where we had the opportunity to sing Jesus Loves Me from the start, maybe can't appreciate the fact that the people that Jesus was reaching out to did not know they were the beloved of God before Jesus came in and broke down the barriers that others had erected. And we cannot overlook these moments, these small moments, these quiet moments, these big moments, because it is in those deeply personal, meaningful moments that we get a glimpse at the heart of God, what God is actually like. Jesus did not simply come to earth and do something to us. He came to earth to live with us. He got to know us. He knew the names of people's children and pets. He laughed, he comforted, he cried. And these are not the actions of a God who does not care about his people. They're not the actions of a God who does not love his people deeply. And perhaps it is here we realize that his care for us is not a thread that runs through the tapestry of this story, but his, his, his love is the warp to our weft. I don't know if you know much about tapestry and weaving. Let me educate you. He is the length of the tapestry the threads that hold everything in place as the weft winds its way across. That's what God's love is. So we would know something about the love of God if we just stopped right there in the life of Jesus. But we would not appreciate the, the deep truth and reality of it because Jesus did uh, not just come to live with us, he came to die for us more accurately to allow us to kill him. If you read the whole story, if you've gone through the Old Testament, if you, if you go through the Gospels, the fact that Jesus is taken to the cross is actually not a very surprising development. We have shown, humanity has shown, the pattern of doing this over and over again. We have long rejected God, clinging to different imagined versions of him that we could manipulate and control, and that looked more like us. And when Jesus threatened the status quo, when he questioned the power structures, when he told people who had all of the influence that they did not represent God, when he told people they should be poor instead of rich, well, he had to be stopped. So Jesus was killed in the most brutal way humans had invented at the time. 
It was a statement killing. He was beaten, tortured, ridiculed, made to carry the instrument of his death and hung out in public for all to see. This too probably should have been the end of the story. God's son had been killed by those he came to love. God tried. It didn't work. It's a tragic ending, but an ending nonetheless. Because, you see, there is nothing more final than death. Death is undefeated. At least that's what we thought. From Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about, when they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. We see now that as terrible as the cross is, and as much as it was supposed to be the period at the end of the last sentence about the relationship between God and man, we understand that the cross of Jesus was never meant to stand alone. It was never meant to stand by itself. In any other story, it would be the last chapter. But this is not, church, the story of the cross. It's not the story of Roman power. It's not the story of the religious elite. It's not the story of this is just how the world works. It is the story of Jesus. And in the story of Jesus, the cross does not stand alone. The cross is simply a vehicle to get Jesus to the tomb. The tomb where the body of Jesus was laid, the tomb that was sealed closed by a rock, the tomb church that was found empty. It was empty not because someone broke in and stole the body, as some have claimed, but because Jesus, who is once dead, had risen. And he is alive. Why do you look for the living among the dead? It's a weird question to ask at a tomb. But it's true. Jesus is not there. He is risen. As Brian Zahn has written, the crucifixion is not a defeat overturned by the resurrection. The crucifixion is a victory revealed by the resurrection. 
And somehow, all of this mess and all that we see happen at the end of the life of Jesus, all of it is a victory. But let's be clear about something. The, the empty tomb does not simply vindicate Jesus as the Son of God. It does much more than that because the empty tomb, again, brings into sharp focus the love that God has for his people. It shouts that we matter to God more than we have ever or could ever believe. Because Jesus has risen for you. In a story that has so many twists and turns, the resurrection of Jesus is at its very heart. And it is also one of the most difficult things for us who are so mortal to wrap our minds around. I have been asked, I don't know how many times, by friends that are not Christians or people who, who you know, know what I do, that I work for a church, one of the first questions they always ask me is, okay, so, you know you're in trouble when they get down to the, okay, so, okay, so, do you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And I answer them, yes, yes, I do. And their response almost every time is, really? Yes, yeah, really. You believe that a guy that was killed rose from the dead. How? I said, I don't think you really want to know how. Because if you can't accept the premise, let's not get into the how. Jesus has risen. It's a concept that is hard for us to wrap our minds around. But I must believe that Jesus is risen. I need to. I need to. Because I need Jesus to have risen from the dead. I must, because the death of Jesus leading to his resurrection from the dead is what makes all the difference in my life, you see. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if the resurrection did not happen, that we who believe in Jesus are to be pitied more than all people. Because the resurrection, you see, completes God's plan to save us. If there is no resurrection, Paul says we are dead in our sins. We hoped in something that was not real. God did not save us. We are fools. But Paul has made the point throughout our study of the book of Romans that sin, the law, our own failure brings death. But through the cross and the resurrection, which we participate in through baptism with Jesus, we attain life. And we can get caught up in the language of death and life and all of this and who's dying and who's coming back and when do they come back and what do they look like. Death in this case, as, as we're talking about it, is, is separation from God. This is what sin does in our lives. We cannot keep from sinning. We cannot be good enough on our own. If we are left by ourselves to fend for ourselves, eternal separation from God is the only outcome. That's what death is. Eternal separation from God. But through the resurrection of Jesus, we have a new life. The old self is gone. The new life is here. And in this new life, there is no more separation between us and God. 
Jesus has destroyed all of the barriers between God and us. He defeated the power of sin, which is death, so that we no longer have to face that separation. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us, telling God our hearts, showing us who God is, and the new life we live, we live joined with God. And in this new life, this life without separation, God can unabashedly, recklessly love us and call us his own. These fools who barely listen to him, who forget he's there, he claims us as his own. We won't be separated from him, you see. When we are his, we are his. And as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, in this passage, Paul's not promising us that our life is going to be easy. He's not promising us that we're going to win every battle we face. He's not promising us that we're not going to experience loss or, or sickness or, or trouble or anger or any of those things. He doesn't promise any of those things, even though those things are so desperately what we want. He promises instead something better. He promises something better. What he says is that no matter what happens to you in this place, no matter what enemy comes at you, no matter what weapon is used against you, no matter what comes your way, nothing can take you from God. Nothing. You can choose to leave God, but nothing can take you from God. Because Jesus, when he defeated death, he defeated the barrier between us and God. And when that barrier comes down, there is no separation. So what can take us from God? Who is going to declare that we don't belong with him if God has said we are his? 
Nothing can separate you from God. Nothing. He will not allow it. And yes, death will come, but death is not the end. Death, like the cross, is just the way to resurrection. It's the way home. And now we look at this tapestry that has been created, and and we see that we've had it wrong all along. We see that he is the warp and the weft. His love is what keeps the tapestry and gives it structure. His love is the color that's woven in and out of the entire picture. And we see in this image the image of a God lovingly creating, a God patiently waiting, his son graciously loving, brutally dying, and victoriously rising again. And where at first we believed that God was the the single thread holding this story together, we realize that we are the single thread. We are in the sea of God's love. Christ is risen from the dead. He is risen indeed. And that, church, is what makes us who we are. It's what gives us hope. It's what brings us life. It's what allows someone as messed up as me to get up every morning knowing that even though I'm going to fail again and again, that there is nothing that can take me from my God who loves me and knows what a knucklehead I am. We are so blessed to have a God who loves us in this way and who brought us victory through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Amen?